Welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is June 11th, 2015, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Ultrasound for Skull Fractures, Those Little Bones. And we have a guest skeptic, Dr. Greg Hall. Greg is the Director of Emergency Medicine Ultrasound at the Brantford General Hospital in Brantford, Ontario, and an Assistant Clinical Professor at McMaster University, the home of evidence-based medicine. He is the Vice President of the Canadian Emergency Ultrasound Society, the co-author of the Point of Care Ultrasound for Emergency Physicians book, and the co-creator of the EDI-2 and the EDI-3 course, a leading-edge POCUS workshop. Welcome to the SGEM, Greg. Hi, Ken. Thanks for having me on. Uh, it's been a long time since I first met you as a junior resident trying to avoid sending patients to the VSA clinic. Ah, uh, yes, the old VSA clinic. I'm glad you brought that up. But it is great to have someone like yourself with ultrasound expertise on the show. I mean, you are the master and I am just the Padawan. Uh, it's great to be here and to share in your social media mastery. Just let me know when you're ready to augment that uh, 19th century auscultation device you insist on carrying around, and I'll help you complete your ultrasound certification in the uh, 21st century. I need all the help I can get, and thank you for the offer. But did you know that we've had a couple of guys on this show talking about ultrasound? Now, they're from the United States, and perhaps you've heard of them. Matt and Mike? Yes, I have met both Matt and Mike, and with the services of some interpreters, we've uh, had some fun discussions. I actually attended one of their infamous Castle Fest conferences, and I even got to debate the difference between Canadian Poutine and Vladimir Putin, um, and I'm hoping that I can entice those guys perhaps to come up to one of our ultrasound conferences in the future. Well, Greg, I just gave you this nice long introduction about being an ultrasound guru. I mean, I listed so many different things that you're involved with with the ultrasound community, but there's something important missing. You have just joined the Best Evidence in Emergency Medicine, or BEAM, team. Indeed I have, Ken. I was honored to be asked, and I admit I was a little bit anxious about joining the team. Um, to provide my perspective on the ultrasound theme material, but I encourage others to embrace and improve their ultrasound skills, so I need to improve my own experience with interpreting the literature for those of you who may not know as much about ultrasound or are legitimately skeptical of its claims for clinical utility. So that's why I'm here. Thank you for throwing in that word skeptical, but ultrasound is becoming such a core part of emergency medicine and BEAM is adding you and ultrasound to the 12-hour BEAM course. And that is better late than never. I do fear overhyping what is just one tool in our clinical toolbox, but I think it's clear by now that there are a lot of potential benefits to uh, POCUS, and there's a growing body of literature to sort through to find out how it can best help us with patient care. Well, let's talk about patient care by leading off the podcast with a case, and you brought a case for us to review. Sure. So um, we're talking about an 18-month-old male who presents to your small emergency department having witnessed fall off a couch where he hit his head on a hardwood floor. Uh, He threw up once, cried immediately at the scene, and there was no observed loss of consciousness. Yeah, and you're sitting there with the parents, and they're concerned about a serious head injury, particularly with that large goose egg or hematoma. But they're understandably not thrilled with the idea of irradiating their child's head the need for sedation, and of course you're in a smaller community and you'd have to transport this patient to another center to get the CT. 
Absolutely. So in this case, uh, in the emergency department, uh, this child has got a Glasgow Comb Scale 15. There's no neurological deficits on exam. And so remembering your PCAR and pediatric CT decision rules, certainly after you were listening to uh, SGEM edition 1112 with Dr. Anthony Krakow, you note that children less than two years old for getting a CT of the head, it's recommended if their Glasgow Coma Scale is less than 15, if they've got altered mental status or a palpable skull fracture. You would also consider a CT if it was a non-frontal scalp hematoma, they had loss of consciousness for more than five seconds, a severe mechanism, or abnormal activity. Yeah, but the child looks great except for this large frontal hematoma, and you want to be able to send the child home. But you know that the presence of a skull fracture increases that risk of an associated intracranial injury. Well, I'm a big believer in honesty being the best policy, and I'll acknowledge that there's a lack of confidence in my ability and probably most people's ability to palpate a skull fracture, uh, especially when you got that kind of really boggy, swollen forehead. Well, that's a great case to start with. So let's talk about a little bit of background when it comes to POCUS or point-of-care ultrasound. It is becoming a popular method for detecting various types of fractures. It's fast. It can be done on less stable patients that you don't want to send to that donut of death. Uh, you can direct it to the area of injury and you can repeat it, particularly when fracture reduction is required. All absolutely true. Ultrasound's been found to have actually decent accuracy when performed by clinicians for various fractures. And there's studies including uh, one done by Weinberg et al. Uh, in injury 2010 and where they found POCUS was found to be equal or superior to plain films and even bone scans involving fractures of some of the flat bones like the sternum. Another study by Jin et al. Uh, in the Journal of Ultrasound uh, Medicine 2006 uh, had similar results. And uh, I do encourage people, if you want to find out a bit more about ultrasound with respect to fractures, there's uh, another good study involving you et al. in uh, Journal of Clinical Ultrasound uh, as well about this. Well, let's get back to the head injury, though. They're common presentations, especially in children. And there's been a big push to reduce radiation exposure, especially this ionizing radiation to young brains. Decision rules like the PCAR and CT head rules help us reduce the number of CT scans done on these minor head injury patients. But the presence of a skull fracture, it is known to increase that risk of an intracranial injury by over four times. Certainly. So close observation or CAT scan is going to be a very strong consideration in these fracture patients, particularly the younger ones. Finding fractures with skull x-rays, though, it can be a bit of a problem. Um, they're not the easiest things to interpret. And these uh, x-rays still will miss a number of fractures. Yeah, the clinical exam is not accurate either for skull fracture, as this study we're going to go through demonstrates. They found only 5% of the fractures in the very low pretest probability group, and 33% of fractures were found in the low to moderate group. Yeah, so I think it makes sense to consider the use of ultrasound. I mean, with no ionizing radiation, it's well tolerated uh, by children, and it's actually not technically challenging to perform. And there have been several other studies now looking at ultrasound for pediatric skull fractures. And the sensitivity it ranges from about 82% up to 100%, and the specificity is better from 94% up to 100%. But Greg, what's the clinical question we're going to specifically ask on today's podcast? So the question is, is ultrasound in the emergency department useful to rule in or rule out skull fractures in children? And what's the reference? So the reference is Rabiner and Friedman et al. Accuracy of point of care ultrasound for diagnosis of skull fractures in children, 
Pediatrics 2013. Let's go through the PICO. What was the population? Patients that were 21 years old or younger presenting to the emergency department with suspected skull fracture undergoing CT scan. And they excluded patients presenting with completed radiological studies already with a confirmed skull fracture or an open fracture, or if the patient required urgent intervention. What was the intervention, though, in this study? In this study, the intervention was point-of-care ultrasound done in the emergency department. Yeah, Greg, and what they did was they had a 60-minute training session for the emergency physicians. It was a 30-minute didactic session, followed by a 30-minute hands-on practical session. And what did they compare this intervention to? So they compared it to their gold standard, which was the CT scan. And what was the outcome they were looking for? Test characteristics with respect to CT scan. All right, so the author's conclusions were, quote, clinicians with focused ultrasound training were able to diagnose skull fractures in children with high specificity. Now, when it comes to these types of trials, we have 10 questions to probe it. So I'm going to run through those 10 questions with you, Greg. The first question is, the clinical problem, did they define it well? Yes, I think so. Uh, head trauma is a common occurrence in children, and often clinicians are wondering about the diagnostic possibility of skull fractures. So ultrasound, if it's found to be useful, it can help modify the radiation exposure to children who are often investigated with radiography or CT scans. Question two, the study population, did it represent the target population that would normally be tested for this condition? Yes. And was the study population included or focused on those seen in the emergency department? Yes, it was. Now, did they recruit their patients consecutively? No, this was a convenient sample. Oh, so that's going to introduce some limitations. Um, question five, the diagnostic evaluation, was it sufficiently comprehensive and applied equally to all the patients? Yes. Were all diagnostic criteria, were they explicit, valid, and reproducible? Yes, they were. The reference standard, was it appropriate? Yes. All undiagnosed patients underwent sufficiently long and comprehensive follow-up? I think so. And number nine, the likelihood ratios of the tests in question presented or can be calculated from the information that they provided? Yes, I can. And the tenth and final question, the precision of the measurement of the diagnostic performance, was it satisfactory? Yes, it was. All right, so let's go through the key results. And first of all, let's start with how many clinicians, because they had physicians that they trained up on doing point-of-care ultrasound for skull fractures. How many physicians did they have trying to find skull fractures with ultrasound? In the study, point-of-care ultrasound was performed by 17 different clinicians. Now, how about the patients or the subjects? How many patients did they have? They enrolled 69 children under the age of 21 with suspected skull fractures. The patient's mean age was 6.4 years, 65% of the patients were male, and the prevalence of fracture was 12%. All right, and the main outcome of this study was the test characteristics of point-of-care ultrasound for skull fractures. So let's talk about those test characteristics. First of all, sensitivity and specificity. So the sensitivity came in at 88% with fairly broad confidence intervals. Um, whereas the specificity uh, was 97% with actually quite tight confidence intervals. Just to remind everybody, the sensitivity is the true positive rate. So you take true positives and divide it by the sum of true positives plus the false negatives, where when you're looking at specificity, the true negative rate and the true negative is taking the true negatives and dividing it by the sum of true negatives plus the false positives. But how about predictive values, Greg? 
So in the study, the positive predict value was 0.78, again, with fairly wide confidence interval. Um, and the negative predictive value was 0.98, so a nice tight interval there. And I'll put the formulas up there for how to calculate the positive and negative predictive values for people. How about likelihood ratios? Sure. The uh, positive likelihood ratio was 26.7. Uh, again, broad confidence intervals. And the l negative likelihood ratio was 0 0.13. And I'll remind everybody that when we're looking at likelihood ratios, we're looking for a positive likelihood ratio of greater than 10 to be very helpful and a negative likelihood ratio of less than 0 0.1. But remember, the results we're talking about here, Greg, they were for detecting skull fractures, not for detecting intracranial injuries. All right, so it's time to talk nerdy. Overall, this was a well-performed study on a very important topic, and more and more of us are trying to limit the radiation exposure to children with closed head injuries. Yes, I think point-of-care ultrasound offers that availability of a quick, uh, non-ionizing radiation modality. Yeah, and the results of this study are somewhat limited though, Greg, because they only had 69 patients. It was a small number of patients that they included, even though this was the biggest study that they've done yet. And there was the limitations because of the wide confidence intervals. You can see that in their results themselves. And the further limitation is that they used a convenient sample. These were not consecutive patients, True, there's definitely several limitations to the study. And yes, it is the single uh, largest uh, single study uh, uh, looking at this topic. They used clinicians with one hour of focused training in skull fracture uh, uh, scanning, and they used a technique of only scanning right over the hematoma region. Yeah, and their single false negative patient, in other words, they missed a fracture, had a fracture just, just adjacent to the hematoma. So perhaps rather than just focusing and scanning on over the hematoma itself, maybe if they used a better technique of scanning on and around the hematoma, they would have discovered this fracture. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now I do, I'm gonna give kudos out to these guys. They, in terms of their focus training, it sounds like they did really take a nice systematic way of you know, trying to differentiate what's a true fracture versus other things that can fool you. Um, but there's no doubt that there's probably ways to improve their methodology for doing scans uh, in future studies. The authors also described uh, the patient with the missed fracture or false negative as requiring observation only and no specific treatment. Yeah, and then they had two false positives, and the first false positive was performed by a novice scanner, but it was overread as negative by a senior clinician, suggesting that training may be important to the accuracy of this study technique. Yeah, the second false positive was called as a positive both by the physicians reading the scan uh, and was called negative on the CT. However, with a small non-depressed skull fracture, CT is not 100% sensitive either, as demonstrated in the studies of other fracture areas. Thus, it is possible that this patient may have had a true positive on ultrasound and a false negative on CT scan. But when it comes to thinking about the conclusions of this paper compared to what we thought the conclusion should be, we agree with the author that emergency physicians with a 60-minute ultrasound training were able to diagnose skull fractures in children with high specificity. But what's the bottom line, Greg? Can you bring this home for us? Sure thing. Let's bring this home. I think ultrasound is a useful adjunct for detecting skull fractures and it helps us further risk stratify those minor head injuries and when used along with a clinical decision rule like PCARN, I think it's quite useful. However, serious intracranial injuries can occur without a fracture and the sensitivity of ultrasound for fracture is not yet sufficient enough to use it as a sole method for detecting injury and making discharge decisions. 
So when it comes to the case resolution, I mean, you, you could order a skull x-ray, but you know that they're hard to interpret, and they have a little bit of radiation. It will miss a significant number of fractures and don't provide any information about intracranial injury. So instead, you decide to pull out the portable ultrasound machine and look for the fracture and combine this with your clinical decision rules. So with mom holding her son in her lap, you gently scan over and around the region of the frontal hematoma. You see that there's no visible fracture, and along with your PCARN rule support, you're happy to observe the child for a few hours in the eMERGE and send him home with clear discharge instructions for the parents. They are reassured by your examination, seeing that their son's skull looks intact on the ultrasound, and they're content to avoid doing a CT unless his clinical picture changes later. So Greg, how are you going to take this literature and apply it clinically? I think that using point-of-care ultrasound in the hands of a competent trained physician appears to be a viable option to help you rule in and rule out skull fractures in children. And one concern from a clinical standpoint is that often children with enough findings to merit concern about a skull fracture often have enough clinical findings to warrant a CT scan to rule out intracranial pathology. True, and also the incidence of pathology below a skull fracture in children is high, so finding one on ultrasound may merit further investigation with the CT. But I think judicious use of radiation should be encouraged, and there's evolving evidence of the long-term risks to mortality and development for children exposed to ionizing radiation. So what are you going to tell your patient, or in this case, because it's an 18-month-old, what are you going to tell the parents? What we're going to tell them is, you know, here I have an ultrasound device that I can, it will help me check and see if your son has a skull fracture. And this can help me decide if he is at risk of having a more serious intracranial injury that needs to get a CAT scan. Excellent. All right, well, that sound means it's time for the Keener contest. And last week's winner was Gareth from Tufts University. He knew that the Wong Baker is the name of the validated pain scale using faces to assess pain in children. Greg, what's the Keener question this week? The question is, what are the names of the different lines that you have been described for lung ultrasound? The prizes can go to the person who can name the most of them. Now, we covered B lines to diagnose acute heart failure on SGEM number 119. But if you think you know all the names of the lines that have been described for lung ultrasounds, then send me an email, thesgem at gmail.com, with Keener in the subject line. The first person to correctly answer Greg's Keener question will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, thanks again for coming on the SGEM, Greg, and discussing pediatric skull fractures. Oh, thanks for having me, Ken. Cracking skulls, doing ultrasounds, that's my specialty. <laughs> and of course, welcome to the Beam Dream Team. I am so looking forward to sharing my take on things, and I'm looking forward to learning a lot from the rest of you guys. And I hope I see a lot of the team and a lot of the listeners at Ski Beam in February. I think it's going to be incredible. We've got three days of beam goodness, followed by two days of our of state-of-the-art 83 advanced point-of-care ultrasound workshop, and most importantly, a full week of skiing. Well, as a longtime listener and a first-time skeptical guest, could you give the SGEM tagline? Remember to be skeptical of anything you learn, even if you heard it on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week. <laughs>